Hello, my friends. My name is Lisa, and welcome to Creative in Process, a podcast where I talk with everyday humans on what it means to be creative in the 21st century. I'm a creative who's worked in journalism and marketing. I love to speak, songwrite, dance, vlog. I love creativity because it fuels connection. And so I've been excited to create this space where we get to explore together how being creative makes us more human. Today's episode features a uniquely knowledgeable guest. Let's meet Josh Pham. Josh is a lifelong tinkerer and creative who grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and Vancouver, British Columbia. Josh studied computer science in Austin, Texas, and has been living in Cambridge, Massachusetts for the past few years. He's been fortunate to be immersed in the intersection between tech and creativity as a career, but also in his side interests. In his job, he's a machine learning engineer who works on music recommendations at Spotify, but he can also be found tweaking a photo or a misaligned break on a friend's bike. Meeting Josh, I was struck by how uniquely and powerfully he holds the humanity of creativity. He's also just mind-blowingly gifted in all things technical, including hacking an iPhone to shoot professional photography. You'll see what I mean. Josh's story is all about using tools as a gateway, keeping tools as tools and not the be-all and all of the creative process. Today, Josh and I chat about what it's like to work as a creative, lessons learned from dabbling across different projects, how to balance logistics with actually doing the creative thing, how to see AI as a tool that augments creativity, and so much more. So let's listen in. One of my favorite things, Josh, that you shared about creativity is that so much of creativity is knowing what you want something to feel like, but not knowing how to describe or get there. I imagine both for you as a technical engineer at work, but also as someone who sees tooling just as a gateway to creativity, that you're sort of living that dream, trying to quantify the how to get there part in a way that fosters more creativity. I would love if you could talk a bit more about this passion of yours and how being a creative at heart is what actually led you to a technical career. Yeah, I guess I've always been sort of a tinkerer. Growing up, I spent a good amount of time woodworking, actually, but also in the digital space. I love to write, make music, and all of those things. What limited me was a tool that felt like it understood me. And I think the thing about creativity is that it is really fleeting. Thoughts are really fleeting. Having the right context is really king. I lose so much by spending time trying to create building blocks. Have you ever used like Evernote before? Yes, actually, my tool of choice. Oh, perfect. I used to make heavy use of like Evernote tags, mm. um, using Evernote tags to create an artifact to come back to later, even as I was writing and creating new content, creating new tags that made it hard to keep track, uh, mm. or even like musical ideas. I think the mm. problem is that with creativity, it's very possible for things to never get built upon because they're always changing. And isn't the point of creativity to be able to re-experience something later on? Mm. So I mentioned woodworking, I realized I wanted to build these systems that help creativity. And it's one thing to like laminate different pieces of wood together to carve them into like a beautiful creation or something. But I think it's entirely other thing to build something that helps people create beautiful things and connect with it. Hmm. And so I think that's what spurred my interest in a technical career. Does that make sense? Yeah, 
at a micro level at the hobby and just to who you are, you like to create beautiful things. And I really push pinned mentally that idea of creating a space where you can build upon what you've already created and revisit it and bring it further. And then it sounds like your technical career launching that came with a heart of wanting to create that for other people so that other people can do that at scale, that impact. And, and there are so many things about the technical field that have to do with creativity. And I think there are a few like discoveries that sort of blew my mind when I first got interested in computer science. There's like this field called computer vision. Uh, an mm-hmm. example of a like, application there is object detection and cameras. I think this is the sort of technology that blurs a line between virtual space and like real space. There's another thing in the space of natural language processing, something called word to vec. It's a way of representing knowledge such that things can be compared to each other. You could say a king is to a queen, much as a prince is to a princess. When you say prince, it would automatically extrapolate the idea and find that semantically it's related to the word princess. So just by representing knowledge that is out there on the web, this algorithm can capture the semantics of relationships between words. And when I learned about this thing, I was like, wow, that's crazy that you can have an algorithm that makes this much sense out of unstructured text. I think that was like a very naive high school Josh very getting more interested in computer science. <laughs> and you're literally scoping how machines understand knowledge. There's so much in between machine understanding and like human abstraction. There are so many problems that arise out of that. Polysemy, mm-hmm. like not knowing what a word means in the absence of its context. You mentioned the context piece and how context is so essential for language and processing and learning. I did linguistics for a while in college, just natural language without the processing part (laughs) with a machine. Humans obviously naturally over the years as we mature, get better and better at processing the context for what we're saying. I think about face-to-face versus digital communication. I think about when texting first came out, hello, Gen Zers, they've never experienced this transition. Absent of emotional context, facial cues, that can be so challenging as is for humans. Transposing that onto a machine and teaching a machine, you know, machines don't have a sense of humor. Machines don't have meaning-making systems, and that's what makes humans irreplaceable. For a while, when I wrote for engineers and really highly technical folks through frolicking around in the software as a service space, a lot of people were working on coding into machines that would, you know, replicate like Arnold Schwarzenegger's sense of humor or something like that. Yeah, it's over my head and beyond me how sophisticated these things can get. Pursuing this topic all the way, it's like, mm. how far Hard can we go time. with machines in this area, and how worthwhile is it to invest all of human energy on teaching a non-human to do this work? Yeah, I think part of this for me goes back to passion for language and writing and for capturing knowledge. Like I mentioned earlier, I would make pretty heavy use of Evernote tags, but that's a really imperfect tool because I sometimes wouldn't know the tag that I came up with. So I think part of uh, my interest in this space comes from the desire to create systems that help retrieve information more effectively with kind of like blurry edges around how it does that. So if you could frame knowledge that you've captured as a search problem and like not know how to look for the information that you want, but like know exactly this is like the theme that I'm looking for, then you would need to pose to the machine like a way to represent that information. And then the machine would say, oh, I know what you're roughly talking about. If I take an example, let's say I, I take all my notes and emojis 
And then the machine like doesn't necessarily know how to map emojis between each other. But hey, let's say if it had a way to represent knowledge in terms of like context, uh, it would know what to look for. That sounds really like a formidable and a compelling challenge. <laughs> so you told me, and you have this desire to learn tooling to be able to create better, not just at work, but outside of work. You mentioned embracing the Stabler mindset. You've done graphic design, logos on Illustrator, video and music production. I would love to hear what you've learned being a Dabbler. What wisdom you can share with us about how to find the right tool for mine, anyone else's creative project? When I think of the reason for changing between different tools, usually or in the past has been some small functionality that one tool provides over the one that I'm using. I think there's a bit of a grass is greener syndrome. The grass is always green on the other side. If I use this tool, maybe it'd be a better life. I think over time, what I've realized is that there are many ways to achieve what you're going for, whether it's a visual effect or a sound or something else. I can give an example. Uh, my Instagram handle for a while was uh, Opacity Mask. Hmm. Uh, Opacity Mask is my favorite tool in Adobe Illustrator. Hmm. Um, it's the idea that you can take a photo and then you could create a mask. On the mask, you can draw textures behind the photo so that you can subtract from the photo. I think that was a really fun tool to work with. The idea that you can add some meaning on top of the thing that you started with. Mm. So that's one example of a tool. What else I'll say is between choosing tools, I think there needs to be like an awareness of the kinds of things that the tool does well. That actually helps provide an agility to switch between tools when like you would otherwise have to move heaven and earth in order to achieve what you're going for with one. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it ties into sort of my part two question, which is at what point do you feel like it's worth it to get at the greener grass with a functionality. I've gotten really into video production and mm -hmm. editing because of dabbling on YouTube really over the past year and switching from Premiere Pro to Final Cut Pro, which mm -hmm. are two comparable video editing software platforms. The switch was prompted for me because I got this new iPhone 12, yeah, 12 mm -hmm. Pro, and then yeah. it suddenly shot in 4K. And I looked at all these YouTube videos frantically and being like, what all can I do with 4K? And realized yeah. it was terrible transferring that to Premiere Pro for some reason. Five more steps Probably. than I wanted yeah. to. Final Cut Pro, because it's an Apple product, surprise, had more of a streamlined procedure for using 4K videos and then being able to spit out videos that look good on YouTube. That was a big enough pain point for me, but what does that look like for you across your projects and or what have you seen? For me, video production, I'm just like kind of honest about my needs. I think there are so many aspects of video capture that are important. Resolution is just one of them. If we were to be honest about like where we consume most of our media, it probably is like a phone or a computer or something. And those sorts of displays aren't 4K displays. My personal laptop is not a very powerful laptop. So for a long time, I was just like limited by what I could edit based on the power of my machine. Personally, at the time, I just felt I didn't need 4K in order to like be creative, feel creative. I really like what you're saying or what I think you're saying or what I mm. want you to be saying right now, which is <laughs> there's a responsibility as a consumer, but also as someone like mm. you who works in the industry, helping to evolve the tech that we do need to scale back and balance priorities. Literally, I got into 4K because I was like, well, my iPhone can do it it's because I realized that the photos were so great. Yeah. And because 4K is available, just like every other brand on the grocery aisle section, because there you want to use yeah. it. 
is it worth it to always use the highest processing power or the most resolution? What are the trade-offs involved? And are you sacrificing something unknowingly that you actually prioritize? Hmm. I think that balance and you would determine what's best for you and what your needs are and figure out what's suitable accordingly. So as a jack of many trades, what's one of your favorite projects you've worked on, whether personally or professionally, and what was the process like finding the tooling for it for you? People joke as a project scales, there's a spreadsheet that sits somewhere in that project as like the best tool for the job. And in this case, it's video production. And in this case, I was working with hours of interview footage for a video a couple of years ago. I think the realization was that for something as dynamic as cutting up and splicing a video, I could find a spreadsheet being the perfect tool. So what I had to do with this interview footage was I uh, transcribed the audio content using an automatic tool, and then I split up the text after I've transcribed it, keeping track of the time codes. So I would take these blocks of text and I would arrange them and their time codes as cells in a spreadsheet. This process of aligning and splicing blocks of text really helped with the more fluid way of organizing content according to a theme. Um, that's a process that would otherwise take hours, kind of just previewing footage and audio and to kind of do this until I had a wonderfully coherent patchwork of stories. So after that, in this spreadsheet, the creative work is done. All we have to do is then take the footage and then I would use the time code numbers from the blocks of text to extract the cuts of video and splice everything together. So that just made the process so much faster. I had fun doing that. I I felt like proud of this creative process that like Mm. I kind of stumbled across. Yeah. That's mind blowing, Josh. I have never imagined myself doing the process like that. For me, I'm so hyper intuitive. I find I value a lot the experience of the face and the Mm. dynamics and the energy. And that feels like it can't be distilled into the time stamped kind of written text if I even read a text and I listen to it, say like on a podcast, I'm like, Mm. wow, this seems a lot more insightful after listening to it because there is something about Mm. the tone or the energy that Mm -hmm. really brought it full circle. Imagine a video is even more so with the visuals. How do you navigate the, this is really good DNA piece of content, but when you look and feel it through the footage, it completely changes the experience. Uh, I totally resonate with that. It's actually fun to imagine the ideal sort of tool that helps you like kind of preview footage and how a piece of content feels really fast. But then you lose out on some of the more, for lack of a better word, like efficient ways of processing that content. I think in absence of that kind of a tool that helps kind of merge the efficiency with the humanity, kind of have to make trade-offs or let yourself kind of sit between the two tools. In this scenario, I wasn't purely working in a spreadsheet. From time to time, I would like read through the spreadsheet and wonder, that doesn't sound like inspiring, but I'm sure the person who was speaking it meant something by it. So to go back to the footage real quick, and this is back and forth process of reading it, listening to it, reading it, listening to it. At the end of the day, though, I think having the structure from beginning to end, like looking at that high level really helped ground me. I think the grounding is really important because in the creative process, I think I am the person who knows it most intimately. I know like the three hours because I've watched through them all. But I think to the end viewer, it's really important that they capture the gist of it. So I think there is humanity, of course, in the entirety of the content. There's also humanity in like the end product, what you splice together from beginning to end. 
at the time that was like, I think that's probably the best balance. Hmm. For me, it sounds like clarity. There's humanity and people being able to fundamentally understand and get the gist of what you're presenting to them in the content and having a beginning to end narrative that's fluid and clear really grounds both you, but also the audience and the viewers in the story mm-hmm. that you're trying to tell. Say for me right now, some of the creative projects I'm working on, like I'm recording it, I'm editing it, I'm delivering it. There's so much subjectivity. It was so hard to ruthlessly cut at my own work. It is tough when you are so invested in the work itself as like an end-to-end person. Mm -hmm. But I think for you, you do have a level of distance and yet intimacy that might help that balance. You're more willing to make the trade-offs in those cuts and clips and moments for the sake of the overall story and and the product. Yeah, it's it's so hard to take away content thinking, oh, that's 30 seconds. I can't afford 30 seconds. I can only eat with four to five. Uh, I think that's a really hard trade-off. I spent hours um, going over 30 seconds and trying to make it five seconds. 30 seconds being five seconds, it's easy when it's my work, something I've said. It's hard when it's something that someone else has said. Mm. Uh, And I feel like I resonate so strongly or so powerful that they've said that. Mm. Cutting it down to five feels like a disservice because it's not my story, it's theirs. There's so many competing creative voices. It's, it's sort of a discipline and it's, I appreciate that it can be creative. I think it's definitely a discipline and an art and a science, one with no right answers. Yeah. For me, I would never say that I defaulted to wanting to learn tools, all the rigid technical learning, anything that felt like it was too structured. You already have this life-changing mentality I remember mentioning last time we talked how with the yard, you have to draw the boundary lines for where your fence is so that you know what's inside or outside of your territory so that you can grow it. I'd love to hear how we can, as creatives, find and keep that balance between acquiring the logistics and the how-to and actually doing the creative thing. First off, that's so well-worded. I like the metaphor of knowing where the fence is I think if it were like tooling, depends around skill sets and what you have available, I would probably ascribe to the 80-20 rule. I can have a lot of tools at my disposal or I can have a lot of skill sets or content at my disposal, but honestly only use 20% of it. Mm-hmm. I think there is something to be said about like spending more energy making the building blocks for creativity versus actually doing the creating. So I spend more energy being creative or getting started. In the past, I've actually found myself creatively frustrated by like spending like, more time tuning a sound on a synthesizer. Mm-hmm. By the time I'm done that, smooth all my creative flow. Uh, and that's tough. As someone who thinks about building tools, this is something that constantly challenges me to do better by the user. Can't just create tools that people won't use. Um, but also I acknowledge the challenge. And I've also been in the place where I have an idea to edit a photograph or where to take a melody. But if you ask me to write down on a sheet of paper exactly what I would do to achieve it, I don't know what I would use. I think all throughout history, people have found ways to communicate their ideas, even kind of within their fence, so to speak. Developing the skill to meet an idea at the right intersection, that's a lot of preparation, but that's also a lot of luck. The inspiration to create needs to come from somewhere. Maybe that's out of the need to flesh out ideas. That was definitely the case for me. Mm. You're right. The setting up is part of the creative process itself. The foundational work that helps you do the creative thing. 
for me, like, I don't intuitively find this out of joyful. Mm. I've learned to find it joyful because it helps me do the creative thing. You seem like someone who finds more joy in the setup than I do. But you're also saying that it's frustrating when you spend the two hours and then you don't have any juice left for what for me is the fun part. What does it look like for you to use a tool that spits out an automatic synthesizer palatable enough that you don't have to tune because mm. it's mass tested for the majority of people's ears versus tuning it yourself and then risking less energy for you to actually ideate? Yeah. I think the creative process will change over time as like more people are empowered with tools that help them kind of get off the ground. The ideal creative tools are the tools that will help you get the first word on paper. Sometimes you don't have, you can't find your pencil. It's like, that's the feeling I have when I have a musical idea and I can't find the synthesizer, I just like lose it because I can't find the pencil. Work recently on creative tools is about making it so people can bootstrap their creative ideas. I mean, if you think about like Instagram, for example, Instagram made it so that you don't have to know exactly what ISO film to use or what f-stop on your camera to use or what like aperture, but you can still capture a memory. You can still share things with your friends. You can still connect with other people. I think that's what better creative tools will do for other forms of art. That'll, that's, I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes me think of how on average, some tools make the process a little bit too easy where you don't appreciate all that's gone into the aperture and the fine tuning that everyone yeah. else has done for you yeah. versus it makes the creative process too hard because even though they did a bunch of work for you, it's not the right kind of work. And you mm. actually have to learn a lot more and teach yourself things that you yeah. don't have any experience in. Yeah. And the super funny thing is I'll get asked the question, Hey, what do you, what camera do you use for your videos? And I've been doing a lot of videos and sharing a lot of videos that are taking with my phone recently. I've been going into the pro mode and kind of setting those settings manually. I'll just tell them, Hey, I'm just using my phone and it'll look like it's taking with a professional camera, but it's because I've used like a professional camera before and know how to manipulate like focal length and exposure intentionally. Well, so. you've got to teach me those settings. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's still fun to do things manually. I think that's part of the joy of photography, videography. You know, certain people will appreciate the difference between automatically synthesized music versus music that's been produced by someone. It'll make all the difference for them. Yeah. That's yeah. a perfect segue to my next question. The quote unquote artificial versus the organic, the mm -hmm. machine versus the human. When I graduated college, started my first job in New York City. Spotify curated playlists were on replay for me. And even the recommendations that I'd never heard of from new artists, I felt like Spotify knew me more than most of my friends in college. 85% of my friends did not know my music taste the way that Spotify knew it. Like we talked about some of the tech can even write articles for you, can paint paintings for you. In your opinion, how do we approach this kind of tech as something that augments rather than is replacing or threatening? human capacity and creativity? That is a really big question. Yeah, and we haven't seen a lot of it come to fruition yet. People are still using it more and more and it's still being under development. There's more things that people can do with it. I think with Spotify in particular, the thing is we might be giving you great recommendations, but like 
go back to your high school friends, like, are you still going to remember that one friend for having impeccable taste in music and admire them for it? Probably yes. But the question is like, are they going to rely on Spotify for recommendations in the same way? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe it's for a different genre than the one that they're an expert in. But like for you and for me, what will help us experience music curation, et cetera, better at the end of the day? I think of my music listening experiences as rabbit holes. They're guided by the recommendation systems that I help build. And I think about these AI models in general, not just for music, but for art. They're trained on artwork from the open domain, from what's publicly available on the web. So these models were inspired by humans. Effectively, they're a lever for humans to act on their inspiration. Just like having just read a little bit about these models, my sense is that the people behind these tools wanted to see these tools as a gateway for more people to express themselves creatively. So I think just personally, that's a very interesting frontier to explore. What will that do to skills and human creative ability over time? Mm -hmm. Totally different yeah. discussion. Right. Yeah. yeah, totally different question and definitely hard question. Yeah. I think there's a balance or a challenge that AI poses to stay balanced. It can make it really easy for you to just keep listening to the music that you have liked for the past 10 years and not necessarily reach for music that's like complete opposite side of the gamut. Hmm. I like to challenge myself, even though I don't like the feeling of being challenged. I like the fruit and the character and the, all the human things that come with challenging myself to reach beyond natural defaults. For example, since I've been doing a lot of pandemic browsing on YouTube, yeah. I know YouTube does a lot of like new for you. You've never watched this before, but here, maybe this is a step further than you normally click on. How do you see that Spotify or AI in general is challenging these human defaults to just kind of hone in on your world that you're familiar with? What is that process like? So in the recommendation space, this is a, I think a really pertinent problem. We can think of a user as like being in different modes. We know you like listening to long songs that you like, but in certain times, maybe it's in the evening when you have some time to like browse through the app, you might be more open to like discover more music that way. How we use recommender systems changes over time. When you couple that with like bubbles of content, there's different diversity and the kind of content you listen to. Uh, I think it's kind of two sides of a scale to kind of weigh. Uh, when do we let you explore beyond your bubble? When do we understand that you are in a mode where you want to explore? And then there's also the, what do you rely on when you use a tool like Spotify or when you're developing a new feature that is supposed to help you explore more? How do we tell you that this is something you should trust? There's really interesting product questions around that. Mm -hmm. I can't help but think about something that's probably more than an arm's reach from what you're talking about, which is the ills of social media. Facebook, for example, politically has become very interesting with people posting personal opinions about everything. You tend to see content from people that you've liked before or that you've already agreed with. And therefore, when you continue to agree with them, that just perpetuates the algorithm, just being surrounded by people you already agree with. Mm -hmm. um, and that argument that that actually changes your defaults and changes your nature and your desired action. And I wonder, like, you can just wonder with me and not respond to this. Yeah. <laughs> but 
I wonder what it would look like, not only ask the question of when will this person be open to listening to new music, but can we put stuff in front of this person, even when they are not thinking that they're open to new music, Mm. really push that boundary a little bit more, not necessarily go all the way to change their character, but create a sense of more open-mindedness in their Mm. habits. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, Like you mentioned, you discover music from your friends. Uh, You discover music when you're just walking around and the memories that you associate with like a new piece of music can come from anywhere. That is something that a tool that you use from day to day may not know about you. So there's a very human element to experiencing and discovering new things, especially developing a connection with them. Like why is something that important to you? A machine might not be able to know. It just knows how to associate A with B. Kind of reasoning about the causality between why you like A and why you like B and are those two things related? I think that's a very open question. It has implications for social media. It has implications for recommending music, uh, all these things. So that's like something to be cognizant of when developing these systems. It is a fun problem to wonder about. Lots of fun problems, not many fun solutions (laughs) or satisfying rather. So my last question for you is kind of a personal plug. My goal out of these conversations, at least in part, is to get more creative fuel to start a future podcast related to something that I've been pondering about on quality of being, not just thinking about quality of external lives, but the quality of our humanity. The being piece is harder to quantify. So I'm just really interested in pursuing a more integrated conversation about what it means to become better as humans as we seek betterment of our society and our culture. I'd love to hear from you what your thoughts are on this topic and also just anything that comes to mind as you're hearing this. First off, that's such a cool project. Uh, I can't wait to see what comes of it. I think there are so many lines that you can draw from this project to that one and all the best for your inspiration there. I think it'll be great. For me, I think there's a hypothetical question and that is, what if I had the most amazing opportunity to go and build the most brilliant creative tool? I think that's tempting in a couple of ways. The first is that what if in the process of designing and building this tool, what if it kind of cost me everything? Time, mental health, relationships, etc. Maybe it actually affords me high quality of living per se. In the fortunate scenario that I'm paid for it or something. And let's say I do it, I, I go and build this creative tool because I believe its users then can go and be their utmost creative selves. And let's say they can achieve their highest quality of being through creative expression. I don't think this ends up being the mirror for my own quality of being. There's a danger in thinking of this one creative tool, let's say as an antidote for creativity in society. Humans were made to be creative. I love creative community in general, but people have so many different ways of being creative. There's this quote, I'll just read it. Uh, Technology presents us with an incredible new language with huge potential for expression in new ways. The most important technologies are going to be technologies that encourage us to be more ourselves. I would encourage everyone to build systems that help people celebrate who they are and how wonderful it is that we're all different. That just struck me. It was from, uh, are you familiar with Jacob Collier? He's like a a very extremely multi-talented musician. Uh, This quote is from his uh, sort of partner in crime. His name is Ben Bloomberg, who helped Jacob create one of his first tools for the road, like a harmonizer that he can play in real time. It's very inspirational because Jacob Collier, he's 
a really great example of, of balancing that creative genius and organic human yeah. talent with yeah. a masterful use of tools. Just how in love with music and using all of these instruments, even parts of the human voice in this crazy level of artistic genius. And mm -hmm. yet I remember listening to this artist Imogen Heap and I was thinking, I feel like I hear a little bit of Jacob in here. You know, mm -hmm. there's shadows of his music and other older artists. And I'm completely butchering the fact that Jacob relied at all on this band, but <laughs> yeah. every Jacob needs a Ben and you're, I think yeah. that's just really inspirational to know that that's where Ben stands. Yeah. Yeah. And Ben being someone who has an opportunity to amplify his creative own creative work through creating this tool. I think I'll also say on quality of being that all of this sort of begs the question, like, even if I love creating what is it about humanity that it was created to be creative? I believe humans were created to have a rhythm in their life. On a regular basis, as part of that rhythm, we do need rest. I think that just kind of goes to reflect what it means to be creative and how does being creative affect quality of being? And I think it is the design of having rhythm. Um, yeah. yeah. I love that. I love that the rhythm really speaks to our conversation today about structure and how yeah. everyone as a creative at least has had experience of incredible flow where the flow took them all the way to 4 a.m in the morning yeah and mm -hmm. they do it again and, and again 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 and i think as students or people with less quote-unquote adulting responsibilities that's potentially okay and if you have a 20 some year old body uh, also for your health it feels okay balance being introduced feels like it's less organic for creative minded folks because they're so energetic and passionate and mm. ambitious that mm -hmm. it takes just the opposite equal form of force to be able to cause them to pause and rest or stop or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Mm -hmm. I think it's ironic for us because striving feels more productive, but sometimes taking the break and watching puppies or something for a while <laughs> or going outside and washing the foliage because it's fall right now really does something incredible to to human potential yeah especially having a job and like it's kind of seeing where this passion for creativity has taken you and me and where this has turned into work or that where this has turned into something that we spend a lot of hours doing it's kind of hard to see that as like pleasurable and sometimes because we do it day in and day out what you were talking about earlier with taking so much time trying to acquire the tool that you kind of lose sight of what you were trying to do with the tool what you're making me think of now is that same kind of feeling but on a more global scale with putting a creative thing as your work, getting lost in the grind of the daily work and losing sight of why you went into it in the first place. What about that thing set you on fire? Reminding yourself to re-engage with that piece, especially mm -hmm. when it's so much of your money and your life and your time is also a discipline. Yeah, yeah. Like all of these are opportunities that we have to cultivate. Uh, creativity and also to cultivate like the environment around us. I, I find myself in learning mode or in like deep dive mode a lot of the time. And sometimes I ask myself, like, why am I spending so much time doing this? Is it going to be worth it? Nobody's asking me to do this, but I feel like it's important to the problem. It's not easy. <laughs> no, it's yeah. not. Even from playing a game, some podcaster challenged all of us to step back from any game that you played and asking yourself, like, did I enjoy that? 
Mm. I was like, that enjoyable. And if not, mm. should I be playing it anymore? I feel like something that simple sometimes can just be grounding. Yeah. Thank you, Josh, for your time today. I was really excited for this conversation. I'm so glad we got yeah. to do this. Likewise. Yeah. Thanks for just kind of taking it in the directions you did. So many different angles that are, are interesting to reflect on and an opportunity to think about something I have not thought about in a while. So thank you. I won't forget what Josh said. Sometimes you just can't find the pencil. And I love what he said after that. The best tools out there are the ones that will help us take that first step of putting pen to paper. It's like Ben Bloomberg, technical sidekick to one of mine and Josh's favorite musicians, which puts him at rock star level coolness in my book. It's like he says, the most important technologies are the ones that encourage us to be more of ourselves. It reminds us that the best of our tools, even the best of our AI, are by humans for humans. So whether you like to nerd out on Excel or iPhone tech, whether you're a garage band dabbler or like me, a Google Doc loyalist, the most important tool is what helps you to do the ordinary, miraculous, creative thing. The thing that makes you the most you. So today, let's continue to find tools that challenge us, inspire us, and the ones that sing the songs of our hearts back to us. You can check out and connect with Josh as Joshua Pham, machine learning engineer at Spotify on LinkedIn. Again, this is Lisa, and thanks for joining me for this conversation of creative in process. I'll have new episodes up every month, so be sure to follow and stay tuned. And also, I would love it if you could leave me a written review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It just helps me know what I do well and also how to make the space even better for listeners like you. But until then, see you really soon. Uh, I was watching a show about professional gamers who used Mm -hmm. to game as a way to get away from the work, but then became gamers and started playing solitaire as a way to get away from gaming, which is (laughs) ironic. So ironic. I was like, what am I watching? This is crazy. Yeah, I don't I haven't played games in a while. <laughs> <I> think, uh, <laughs> Maybe this is a, a sign. 